it's also, you know, there's a certain ability to say to yourself, well, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And there is that element of like, I've now got more than a decade of experience in verifying and validating the content we see on social platforms. And I've been through that. And also I've worked for one of those social platforms and I've also spent 20 years as a journalist. So there's not a lot of people about that experience and we need more people like, like me. So I think what happens at a certain point in your career and you're going like, I want to solve this problem. I have a duty as well as a privilege. The duty is if I can do it and I can make a difference given my own personal journey and my experience, then I have an obligation to try this. So now today, as opposed to when I was maybe 39, then it was an opportunity. Now there's a certain obligation that I feel about doing this for the years to come. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators and global leaders. This show is brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organization with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and today I'm chatting with journalist-turned-entrepreneur Mark Little, who is embarking on tackling the problem of misinformation in the media and across social platforms with his most recent startup, Kinzen. Mark Little has really had a career of two halves. The first one was as a journalist and a regular presence on Irish TV during his time as a foreign affairs correspondent and the presenter of Primetime. And during that time, he was admired and respected for his capacity to connect with the audience and report on stories that were shaping the nation. But the second half of his career is totally different. He is now an innovator and entrepreneur who is building companies that shape the new media landscape. And he began with this in 2010 when he launched Storyful to help create news from the noise of social media. And in our conversation today, we'll talk about how a small group of journalists in Dublin were influencing how monumental news stories were breaking around the world, and how Storyful became a launchpad for a new style of investigative digital journalism, which has placed Irish journalists in some of the leading media companies around the world today. And Mark's most recent company, Kinzen, is tackling the problem of misinformation in the media. This is an even bigger challenge than what he accomplished at Storyful. But in his eyes, he isn't taking this on because he simply sees it as a business opportunity, To Mark, it's actually a moral obligation. He has a mission to make sure that every citizen has confidence in the information they consume every day. And in this interview, we will be discussing how he plans to achieve that. To understand why Mark is so driven to improve the quality of information and social discourse in today's world, we have to understand how important politics was to him in his youth. Because social commentary is something that mattered deeply to him from an early age. I grew up seeing uh, politics as a initially a spectator sport. Um, in Irish households, politics is like sport, you know? You can take the side of one party or the other, but never really, it's not like taking a factional support. It's not like American politics where you're Republican, Democrat, and you hate each other. Like I remember my father um, and his friends would have the most enormous rows about politics, and yet it was all like sport. But then it started to get, I realized politics was actually quite sectarian and partisan. And, you know, you, you had to take the party position or, you know, you're essentially disloyal. So once that started happening, I realized I'm not comfortable with this. For me, politics was about the big tectonic plates of history. And I studied politics at, at university. So I was obsessed with the idea of this historical movements 
um, there's a great theory of the dialectic, which is, you know, there's a conventional wisdom and people fighting against it. And then out of that comes change. So, yeah, when I started to become a journalist in my um, probably my first job, I worked for a <laughs> the Communist Party's magazine in the UK in the advertising department, believe it or not. Um, so that would tell you I was involved and interested in the big historical uh, fights over, over, over big ideas. And so when I eventually became a journalist, I was much more interested in the United States and the politics of the US and the politics of the Middle East. Um, so when I finally became a foreign correspondent, what just obsessed me was how change happens and how people live in such difficult circumstances and come up with solutions. Uh, ideologically, I didn't really ever stick to one thing. I mean, I was left wing as a student, but then again, that's kind of where you should be. Um, and then as I grew older, I became very interested in some of the positive aspects of the United States. So I started to have a big, broad range of uh, experiences as I went through my journalistic career. So I think that's what eventually led me back into becoming an entrepreneur, which was as a journalist, you describe things, you say, that's a problem. Um, in the TV studios in primetime, I was a referee in debates between kind of the politicians. And that just became frustrating. I, di I didn't want to be, you know, the person just looking at change, observing change, being passive about it. I actually wanted to be involved in creating change. So that's because essentially why I became an entrepreneur. So there's a direct line from that you know, 14-year-old boy who wrote an angry letter to the Irish Times because they were teaching us religion compulsory <laughs> to the entrepreneur at the age of 39 who decided to jump out of my job and set up a company and hopefully in the process change some piece of the world. Did you have that drive as a journalist starting out to, to be able to have somebody who had the capacity to yield change? Was that always something that you saw? Because you have that capacity, but you're, you're very limited in the, in the scope of what you can do at the same time. Yeah, it's it's terribly limiting. And and when you're out in these places, and I remember in a, a refugee camp on the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan, and you know, I'm, I'm there talking to the, the 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 tribal elders and they're describing to me the famine that has befell, befell them the previous four years. And uh, they offered me lunch. And I thought like it's an obscene thing to take lunch from these people who are obviously uh, in, in suffering. And and I said, No, but we'll be back sometime. And I heard a voice from the back, a young boy, maybe 12, 13, in perfect English saying, when you get back, we'll be dead. And I remember feeling this paralysis, like I could go out, tell the people's story. Would that lead to any change? Most, most probably not. And at that moment, I think I did start to feel, you know, it doesn't matter whether I see this and describe it to people. So, you know, there's a famous old line about, um, you know, if you want to deal with the future, then invent it. Uh, and that became part of the mantra that I helped me leave RTE. Now, by the way, don't get me wrong, I was super excited, privileged, proud, honored to be in the position of being in the TV studio uh, with these politicians debating the big issues or going to war zones. That wasn't, uh, I could safely have kept on that, that life for the rest of my career. It was very well paid. It was, you know, people knew who I was. I had a power. But it's just something about it. I said to myself, if I don't go and do something to actually practically change the things I care about uh, at the age of 39, I'll be at 69 on my retirement going, what did I do? You know, I should have maybe taken that chance way back. So that was kind of what compelled me in the end was um, a combination of frustration that maybe the message wasn't connecting uh, with uh, a real awareness of the time in my life. When if I went and jumped then, I could make an impact. Uh, so I really felt at that time I had a great idea, which was to set up a business that would essentially make better use of Twitter 
bring journalism into the future. And just everything combined in, in that year, in 2008-9, where I realized, okay, I'm just not going to be part of this pessimism. I cannot just be a referee and observer at a moment in Ireland when, you know, more than ever, we need people who are going to take the jump and do risky, optimistic, groundbreaking things. Um, and so, yeah, it, was, um, it wasn't something I chose. Uh, any good entrepreneur, any bad entrepreneur will tell you uh, being uh, an innovator and entrepreneur is about getting an infection. It's not really a choice. And did you did you go on that journey independently to begin with, or did you have any founders that you brought along in the journey with you to start in building what would become Storyful? I was so profoundly alone by choice um, and inexperienced. Uh, my very first day, I had got at least an office. I had found an office in, uh, in the city centre of Dublin, and I went up to my whiteboard and I was mapping out my business plan on the whiteboard and realised halfway through that it was permanent marker I was using. So, you know, spent the rest of the afternoon trying to rub it off. So, you know, that's how profoundly unprepared I was and lonely. Um, but very quickly, I think, you know, there was people out there who probably were very similar in their stages of career to me. And very quickly, I built uh, up the core of the team. And, uh, you know, some people stayed, some people left. But in the end of the day, Storyful was about me building the team that built the company uh, where, you know, I was a sole founder um, from the very beginning and I took all the risk financially. But there were people who came along at certain points in the journey that also took risks to go with the vision that I had outlined. So, you know, at the time it felt lonely, but in retrospect, um, you know, I realized that actually people were putting their, their own reputations on the line and sometimes careers. So, um, yeah, very quickly, like-minded people started to appear almost by chance. And, and that's the secret to success of any great company, no matter how lonely, individualistic, charismatic the single founder is, they're going nowhere unless they can bring a team together, provide some cohesion, and then almost step back and let the team carry the thing forward. And did the did the initial vision, the the permanent black the permanent marker on the whiteboard, how close was that to what would eventually make Storyful successful? You know, to be purchased. It's funny. I, I suppose I'm jumping out of a plane, you know, like you're jumping out of a, with a parachute in your back and you're aiming for like a big football field somewhere, you know, like you can see it. It's, it's tiny from the plane, but you're, you're aiming for that. And then as you get closer to it, whether you land either end, you just want to land on a football field. And that's kind of what happens, I think, with a startup. Is you have a general idea of where you're heading. Now, the wind may take you and you've got to turn plan B and I'm going to pivot now and I'm going to land over there. So I think with Storyful, we generally landed where we, we started out, which was to find ways to extract the value from social media, uh, find the news in the noise. And that phrase was used initially in the early stages of, the, of the, the company. We took different forms. So with a startup, the vision really has to stay aligned uh, or else you've got a different company. But the route to market can change. And for people who aren't uh, aware of what Storyful does, could you just explain uh, what it does for these corporations that would use Storyful as, as a So it's, it's idea was initially was, well, what would do you do if you started a, so, a news agency like the AP or Reuters from scratch in the age of social media? You wouldn't actually have an army of journalists out there. You'd find ways to find the small number of people who on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and all the social platforms are taking photographs, like what we used to call user-generated content. And so what we were doing was we were finding the needle in the haystack. In Syria, for example, we were finding the protesters on the streets that were taking videos of the protests. And then we were verifying that they were what they said they were. 
we were connecting with the uploaders and then we were passing on these videos and these tweets uh, to the big news organizations and finally we ended up working for youtube in curating the arab spring for them to really find the news in the noise so we became very much like a news agency the twist was later on we realized that it wasn't just serious news uh, we were finding funny videos viral videos and what we were doing in that case is because they had massive reach and virality we start licensing so we took the ownership of the video and we turned on the monetization and then we could give a very good chunk back to the person who shot the video so the very first successful viral video we ever licensed was of a, a a mother singing to her child and the child went through this cycle of like elation and fear and desolation and joy in a space of about 30 seconds and we ended up making i think 50 60 grand for that uh, child and the mother uh, by licensing that and then we obviously took a chunk of that revenue and then we could also make more money by giving it to you know people like yahoo or the bbc or whoever else so it was a great business uh, at a time when viral videos were just starting to become the kind of thing that you're sharing with your friends so today i think every time you see a particularly um funny viral video particularly on television it's generally come from storyful um, and that's eventually what got the attention of um, news corporations so we were working really hard spending an awful lot of time on the serious stuff and funding that serious work with all this funny stuff that we were doing in the background that was earning probably when we were sold you know the majority of the revenue and that's that serious stuff has actually bred a whole new set of irish innovators two people that i got to meet i know there's many more was maliki brown who's involved in the video investigations at the new york times and donnie o'sullivan who's at cnn but it's interesting because like storyful started to breed these these new forms of journalism from that and that was all from the basis of the company that started how did you how did you find these people that were going to be a fit for this business well, a lot of them were, the, were not the sort of the show horses, uh, you know, the race horses, if, if I can say it that way. They were not the people who were looking for the byline or wanted to be on television. These are just really great, serious journalists who paid a lot of attention to the detail. So many of them were sub-editors. You know, they're the people who write the headlines and correct the copy and make sure everything you see is, is ready for print, whereas a lot of journalists are very sloppy. These are people who are generally not sloppy. They're, they've got a great sense of the rights and the wrongs and the facts. And, and they're not people necessarily that are always dying to be on the front page. They're just the people who care deeply and passionately about the really old values of journalism, truth, fairness, attention to detail. And so, you know, people like Malachi from the very beginning, Malachi been working a little bit on Irish websites and political websites. And uh, we met and he's an extremely modest and humble guy. He doesn't come in the room and go, bang the table and I want a job. Uh, Anya Kerr, who turned out to be the co-founder of my current business, Kinzen, literally walked in after coming back from a study tour in the United States and said, I want a job. Give me a job. And so she kind of hired herself. And, and these people started to come together. And then once one person joined, they had a series of friends who they went off and got. So, you know, we, we Maliki came in, he had a network and we'd uh, a lot of other people who came on board initially in the early iterations. And they were doing the unglamorous, unsexy jobs that actually were the groundbreaking piece of the equation. Um, and so finally, I remember Maliki and myself had a really heart-to-heart -heart conversation one day, our very first video where we just didn't know. It was a video of allegedly 
a Syrian rebel burying alive a government soldier. And we just couldn't tell if it was right or wrong. And we said to ourselves, what if we say we don't know? That, that'll be a revolutionary act. Or what if we say it's not true? We stop the story instead of starting it. And so he went off and got a great clarity of purpose. And then literally within an hour, he, he, he actually had uh, proved that it was a fake uh, because he had opened up to other people. So it's what's now called open source intelligence, which means you collaborate with other people. You're not looking for the scoop. You're not looking to be the first person to start a story. You're working with a group of very smart people who are just like you sometimes to stop the story. So while it was the very essence of great journalism, it was against everything that the breaking news cycle journalism that we've come to know was about. And so for that reason, Maliki and people like him are the very finest representation of the age-old skills of journalism, while at the same time, the pioneers of a groundbreaking new form of journalism called open source intelligence, which you know is a label that's now used. We didn't use it at the time. So you always know you're in the pioneering part of the business when there's no real name for what you do. There is now. And there's also recognition in the case of Maliki getting a Pulitzer Prize in the case of a lot of other people in the, in the organization that came a bit later than Maliki, who kind of, he set the ground for uh, some who worked for the International Criminal Court verifying human rights videos. Um, there's others that have gone into CNN, Washington Post, the Times of London, the BBC. So now I think what's happened really is, is that um, sometimes it's the pioneer, it's quite lonely path. And, uh, you know, I always knew Maliki would be as successful as he is. But, you know, at the time we were doing this, a couple of chancers in an office uh, over the Liffey of Dublin. Um, like the first day I remember it's going to work was Osama bin Laden had been killed uh, in his compound in Abbottabad. And we all arrived in the office like really early to see what, 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 what could we say about it, not knowing we could. Within about an hour, Gavin Sheridan, who was one of the early pioneering employees, had found the place in the map. And it wasn't where people thought it was. He got a satellite image of the downed helicopter, uh, Seahawk. Uh, we got the ABC News folks. We guided them to the compound. We were going back and seeing the first person to detect the attack, who was an English-speaking Pakistani tweeter. We were piecing together forensically the whole picture through maps and open source intelligence to say this is what actually happened and guiding journalists on the ground into the compound or near the compound. So that was a moment at the end of that day going, like literally that was the holy shit moment. This is mind-blowing what we could do here and that was as i say a bunch of chancers <laughs> who were just not like rock star journalists necessarily in a tiny little office in dublin um talking to youtube in california the bbc the new york times abc news new york who all possibly thought that we were hundreds of people uh in a huge office somewhere but actually we weren't we were just doing things um, that were very special in December of 2013, Mark sold Storyful to News Corp and moved to New York to help with the transition of the company. But after 18 months as an executive in their New York offices, he moved back to Dublin and took up a role with Twitter as their managing director of the European HQ and also the head of media partnerships for Europe, the Middle East and Africa. But shortly after a year at Twitter, he left. So I was left kind of in this position like when I was a Storyful News Corp, I was an executive, well-paid, but 
wasn't necessarily a, a big intellectual challenge um, because of the direction the company had taken. Um, I took maybe four months trying to persuade myself not to start another company. I investigated every possible per- way of not not having to found the company, and then realized that you know what my mission in life is to make sure every citizen has confidence in the information that they consume every day. That's a, a very noble thing to have because it, it, it exceeds far beyond just the business itself. Well, when did you come to that clarity that that's something that drives you? Well, it would always have been there, but when I started to express myself in 2017, shortly after leaving Twitter, I did a kind of a speaking tour and I wrote quite a bit about the emerging realities of misinformation because I had obviously that experience to bring to me. And I, I remember thinking, what, what's the overall mission here? Like if I looked at my life and I said, what did I did? Well, I, I did the best I could to help make sure every individual could have that confidence. So there were two ways to go. I could you know, build something that would be all about misinformation, fact-checking, but I felt fact-checking was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. There needed to be something more than that. And I started to get interested in the technology that was polluting and contaminating the news feeds of the world. And I started to think to myself, what if we could change these algorithms and rewire the internet so we can reward quality instead of what the internet is designed to do is reward outrage. And, you know, that mission is is way more relevant now than it was back in 2017, but the problem is just, is just greater. And we know this through COVID. So Kinzen started out really as a way of trying to help individuals, again, consumers, Built, we built an app for people to try and take control of the news feeds. But actually, we understood then the technology itself is what really the value was. So we're now focused a lot on trying to detect and disrupt disinformation campaigns, conspiracy theories, uh, using machine learning, but most of all, human skills. So all those editorial skills that Maliki and Anya and people like me back in you know, 2010 were using, we're now coding them into machines so that we can use human values to power these algorithms. And that will increase, obviously, the chances that we can detect disinformation and help people who've got quality information get ahead of the pack. And where would that show up? So who would be who would be using Kinzen then? Who would be using those algorithms? Would that be media companies which would implement them themselves? Or oh, where? Yeah, I'm just curious about that, about where it shows up for the consumer. Yeah. So our first customers were media companies, particularly in the UK, who were using it to personalize their content and essentially allow the user, you and me, to go, I like that, I want more of that, and to essentially have a role in the process of selecting the stories. And that was pretty groundbreaking. So we're working with them. In the process, the technology became interesting to a couple of the platforms. So we now work with a couple of the big technology platforms. Um, you know, Without naming them, we can't really talk about the work in public, but a lot of the work we're doing with them is is to try and use the human judgments that we have to build new algorithms to detect disinformation. So whether that's in English or it's in Arabic, whether it's in video format, it's in text or in audio, the machinery we've built is helping them detect conspiracy theories. So for example, if we know that a particular person is promoting bleach as a cure for COVID, we can get quickly into the conversation, find that, and let the platform know that there's a dangerous, a really dangerous conspiracy theory that is circulating on their platform or is in danger of circulating on their platform. And then they can get ahead of that and act to either you know, detect it and uh, get rid of it or maybe not take any action for the moment, but just keep it under observation. So what we're doing essentially is what I call content moderation. Um, so more and more, these big publisher, these big platforms 
are going to have to act a bit like traditional media companies. They'll have to have this editorial capacity and they just don't have it now. And that's what we supply. We supply a bit of that editorial know-how as they try program algorithms and automated curation systems to try and keep out the bad stuff, promote the good stuff. Is this what we're kind of seeing today now where Twitter is starting to flag some of Trump's tweets and starting to state if there's something that's uh, inciting violence or whatnot? Is, is, is that the kind of role that Kinzen's trying to play to bring that to the front so that things can be flagged? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, these platforms have like hundreds in case of some of the big platforms, tens of thousands of engineers working on the algorithms, but they don't have any journalists really. Um, in you know, traditionally, when I was at Twitter, I think it was like three journalists in the entire organization. Now, there's more there now. So I, I think what the, the big platforms are all about engineers. They're all about products. They're all about technology. And what they've lacked in the past year or two as they tried to design new systems is the editorial human values. How do you build them into an algorithm? And that's what we're helping do. So in many ways, what we are is just a piece of software that helps them along the way. We're not solving the problem for them. Uh, we're not setting the policy for them. We're just building a piece of software that is bringing this unique combination of the human editorial skill with smart technology that's helping their systems work way more efficiently. It sounds like you've caught the right wave at the right time just again. Does it feel like that? Yeah. Yeah, there is that. I mean, I spent an awful lot of time making what I do later look easy but it's you know it's still been three years we've been around the block doing this and there'd be dead ends along the way and a lot of thinking and then suddenly you wake up one day and someone's doing exactly what you thought you wanted to do and so you know it's still hard but if the vision if the vision stays the same like continue with our team internally we know that the same sentence i was saying back in september 2017 uh, the same words that anya my co-founder and business partner that we were talking about on stages together it's still the same but just the way we've got there is different so you know my personal the only great like uh, corporate uh, motto or mantra that i've ever really believed in was jeff bezos when he said stay stubborn on the vision but be really flexible on the detail and and that's i think the secret is uh people will look at you and go you're an overnight success um yeah and this time around it's also i, I know that the exit for me is not just getting to a point where we can sell the company. Like this is something I would be happy if this is all I did for the rest of my career. Uh, someone asked me that last week at Project Manager. He says, "Would you be just happy if that's all you did?" Uh, and I'm like, "Yeah, emphatically, yes." I'm not looking to go off and uh, live on a desert island or buy a desert island. Um, is that because you feel that this is more necessary than ever? Is that because you see the like the intrinsic link between what you're building and? what's needed in society today it's also you know there's a certain ability to say to yourself well if not me who yeah. and if not now when and there is that element of like i've now got more than a decades of experience in verifying and validating the content we see on social platforms and i've been through that and also i've worked for one of those social platforms and i've also spent 20 years as a journalist so there's not a lot of people who have had that experience and we need more people like like me. Now, other people, obviously, who compliment me and have different ways of doing things and, and also skills. Like Anya, for example, is incredibly good at the execution of ideas. I'd be great at a whiteboard. As you can see behind me, I always need a whiteboard near me. But Anya is really good at turning those ideas into reality. So I think what happens at a certain point in your career and you're going like, I want to solve this problem. I have a duty 
as well as a privilege. The duty is if I can do it and I can make a difference given my own personal journey and my experience, then I have an obligation to try this. Um, so now today, as opposed to when I was maybe 39, then it was an opportunity. Now there's a certain obligation that I feel about doing this uh, for the years to come. And I've read a lot about the way that your brain works in your 20s, 30s, and just up to about 40, you have what's called fluid intelligence. You're rapidly acquiring ideas and synthesizing them. And you're really good at on-the-spot thinking. You get to 40, you've got what's called crystallized intelligence. You're pretty wise. You know, you're looking at things and you're not getting too worried about the small things and you're a bit more able to spot the really important true things. So I think I'm at that stage now where I can possibly be a bit more, um, yeah, measured in, in what I can contribute to this particular moment uh, in the history. And uh, yeah, so there's a certain feeling of like, you have an obligation to try this and keep with it and go as far as you can. And if it fails, you know, you'll pick yourself back up again and maybe do something different. But for this moment in time, this is where you should be. Right. It's that, it's that, uh, it's that discomfort, that constant discomfort that actually yields life to be, I think, much more rewarding. Um, it's the crucible, yes. Yeah, the famous principle that the only time you ever create something truly lasting and valuable and precious in your life is the moment of extreme discomfort. It's not that you have to go through pain for your whole life, but there's moments when you're challenged. And I think it was um, Teddy Roosevelt talks about the crowded hour, the moment in your life when everything's happening and that forms you, the crucible in which you jump into the, the battle and, and you're in a position where you could suffer greatly and yet you come at the back of it and you've, you become less fragile. There's actually a theory about anti-fragile that the more you've gone through something, whether it's jumping into freezing cold water, the less it's intimidating to you as you go forward. And that's the great value. I've never learned anything from my successes. I've only ever learned from the failure or the discomfort that I endured and got through and looked back and went, that wasn't so bad, or I could do that again. So that's kind of where I feel uh, I've, I've learned an awful lot more from adversity than I did from the things that people now say, they defined you, those successes, nah. It was all of the shit, to be honest, that I had to go through to get there. That's what made me who I am today. And I never forget that. And that actually becomes a superpower. I want to say a huge thank you to Mark for joining me on the show today. And thank you for listening to today's show. If you have any suggestions, please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com and let us know. If you want to learn more about the Digital Irish, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with hashtag digitalirish. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please just take a moment and subscribe and review the show. It helps us immensely in climbing up the rankings. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts and all other major podcasting platforms. I'd like to thank Kieran Kay and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.